Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. We believe that Jesus Christ was on the third day after his crucifixion, after he actually really died, bled out, and died, was raised bodily from the dead. We actually believe that. It's not a metaphor, it's not a symbol, it's not a part of a great Christian myth that is uh, most perfectly embodied in that story. We believe that Jesus walked this earth, he ate fish and chips, he drank wine and water, he, he shook hands, he gave hugs, he patted heads, and then one day he was unjustly murdered, killed, crucified as a, as a moment of political intimidation by the Romans, as a moment of political aspiration by the Jewish leaders. He really died. They had to make sure that he was dead, and he was, and they put him in the tomb, and they didn't know what was going to happen next. It was going to be business as usual for the rest of their lives. The bad guys win. The good guys suffer and die. And then we believe that in some way that Hollywood has yet to accurately capture in some way, on that Sunday morning, Jesus Christ, he didn't just come back to life, right? It wasn't like, you know, he was changed. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, that like a seed goes into the ground and comes up like a beautiful tulip, beautiful spring flower. Jesus went into the ground just like you and me, but he came up as something different. He came up glorified. He's never going to die again. Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That was pretty cool. Lazarus is where? He's in the grave. Jesus is not there. Where Jesus is, we're going to talk a little bit more about this morning. But thank you again for being here with us on this Easter Sunday. This is a high holy day for the Christian church. This is one of those days where, where everything comes together for us. Like, why do we get, we, we don't just like singing. We don't just like uh, stand-up you know, being yelled at or whatever you call this, right? We don't just love this little league of people. We love it because we have met this resurrected Jesus. And we have come to know and to believe that this is true and this is real and this is the way the world operates and we want to, we want to go deeper into it. Not further away from this truth, but deeper into it. I'm already preaching Let's go ahead and pray and get into our, our reflection this morning on Isaiah 53, verse 12. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning and for all that uh, we remember here today. Here in Wisconsin, 2,000 years later, we commemorate that moment when the disciples went to mourn the death of Jesus and they were confronted by a great gaping hole where mourning and grief should have been. They were confronted with that great emptiness and everything changed. And Lord, everything has changed for us who know this story and who know this truth about our Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that some things might change again afresh for us this morning as we interact with Scripture. We pray that, Lord, the Word would dwell in us richly, that your love, Father, would be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up and we would be drawn to him in a fresh way and with fresh power. We pray that 
things in our lives that seem complicated would suddenly be made simple. Things in our lives that seem too difficult would suddenly be made to seem easy. Because now we see how things are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time that you enjoyed the spoils of war? It's not really a thing we do, is it? Right? Like I remember our, our, our basketball team in high school beating other teams in, you know, in a game. And we didn't go into their locker room and you know, like I you know, pluck a calculator from a other kid's school. This is my plunder. I have defeated thee in staged combat. Like, it's not really a thing we do. You know, we, we sort of uh, we talk about celebrating. Hey, let's celebrate. What do we mean? Like, let's go out for coffee. Let's go out for ice cream. Let's, let's really splurge. I'm going to get a new pair of shoes. You know, it's like we don't work too hard, and so we don't celebrate. We don't enjoy too much, which is the opposite of the servant of the Lord whom we meet in Isaiah 53. Our verse today, Isaiah 53, verse 12, can be summed up simply in this way. This isn't in the uh, bulletin note-taking guide, but I would write this down because this I came up with last night, and I think it's way better than everything else that's in there. Jesus did it all. So Jesus gets it all. Jesus did it all. Jesus gets it all. We're going to be looking at verse 12. You'll notice the first word in verse 12 is a therefore. This is the only therefore in the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. That means this indicates that at this point we have reached what is now the consequence for all that has happened in verses 1 to 11. This is the consequence of the entire chapter Isaiah 53. There's actually two words that only occur in Isaiah 53 here in this verse, the therefore and the because, you'll notice two lines down, therefore I will divide Jesus, I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So that because effectively summarizes in brief the entire, uh, the, all of the themes of Isaiah 53. So we're going to honor this summary and just review this briefly. Isaiah begins that he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Let's start with that. This hits a couple of the big themes of Isaiah 53, that Jesus suffered greatly, right? He poured out his soul to death, which is such an extraordinary expression, right? We don't really talk this way, like, you know, Grandma didn't pour out her soul to death. We say she passed away, she's, she's gone, or whatever. This, is, this, this speaks of, of extraordinary sufferings. He poured out his soul to death. He, he suffered greatly. He also suffered willingly. He poured out his soul. It looked to all the world like the Romans were doing what the Romans do, and the Jewish leaders were protecting theirs, and the mob was doing what the mob does. But Jesus explained it. We saw this last week. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. Nobody's going to take my life from me. But I lay it down freely of my own accord, and that's what's captured here. He poured out his soul to death. And then it says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I just want to connect a few things here for you. In the previous verse, it talked about how many were accounted righteous. Many who did not deserve to be righteous were considered, were counted as among the righteous. Here, this is saying that Jesus was counted among the transgressors. Transgressors is like a meaningless word for us, right? It's like, what does it mean? We think transgression, we think, well, oh, we stepped on God's toes. But the word actually conveys rebellion. 
Jesus was numbered with the, re the rebels, those who deserved by the conquering king to be put to death. Jesus was counted among the rebels so that the rebels could be counted among the victors. It says he poured out his soul to death. He was counted with the rebels, yet, let's make this clear, what he was actually doing there was he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for those rebels. Of course, the great emphasis of Isaiah 53 is that Jesus suffered for our sins. And by death, by his death, he took them away, he carried them off, so that now, thanks be to God, they are gone. Jesus he worked, he priested on our behalf. That's what that intercession means, so that we can now have peace with God. If you look at verse 5, this is the great benefit that this chapter holds out to us. Verse 5, the third line upon Jesus was the punishment that brought us peace with God. So, so far, that's the summary. Now let's get to the therefore. What is the consequence of all that Jesus did described here in Isaiah 53. Therefore, God says, I will divide Jesus a portion with the many. I will give him a portion and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, I just want to point out, this is, this is not really, uh, there's no attention really drawn to this in our text, but it's, it's a pretty strange uh, moment, right? So Jesus just died. In the story of Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul to death. He was cut off from the land of the living. Right? So he's dead, and now what's he doing? He was dead, and now he's dividing the spoil with those who won. What does that mean about his uh, condition in relationship to life? He's alive. Right? He's alive here. That is the implication. Now, what is this? I just want to pause on this, even though this isn't really the main train of where we're going. Jesus Christ is alive. Why did Jesus come back from the dead? What's going on here? And I, I just want to, I'm not really going to explain it too much, but I'm going to point to the Apostle Peter's first explanation there in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, in the first time where Jesus' followers really explain what is going on with Jesus and his resurrection publicly, Peter says this, read this with me, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you all nailed Jesus to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David in the Psalms said this about Jesus, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. In other words, the Creator God is not about to let His successful suffering servant just stay dead. He's not about to let that happen. Now you might say, well, that's not really fair. Like what? Jesus goes to be a sacrifice and then He gets to, he gets to come back to life again? Well, that's kind of the whole thing, right? When you've got this relationship with God, you've got a massive cheat code. You know the whole, the whole back door to everything. He's the creator God. You think, well, does that diminish what Jesus did on the, on the cross? Does it diminish his sufferings? Because he knew the cheat code? No. And what do you think your life is? Don't you know the cheat code? 
Don't you have the same promise? Whatever happens to you, wherever you go, whatever's going to be done to you, you got the back door, you're coming back in. You're coming back to life with Christ. So, the Creator God's not about to let this go down so that the one who pours out his soul to death comes back to life. And what we read here in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Simply put, Jesus gets what he deserves now. Jesus now gets what he deserves. He is the victor, and to the victor goes the... Come on. There we go. To the victor goes the spoils. He started this whole journey. Remember how he started? He was despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. And now, he's at the top. Now he's at the front. Now he gets the pick. Now it's all his. Some of what he gets is what is given to him by God. That's his reward. As a servant of the Lord, he gets this as his reward. I will divide the portion with him. And some of it, he just takes because he won. That's his right. He gets to do whatever he wants now. I will. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. And so now in this way, Jesus finally comes to the, the position that this whole story started with predicting that he would be in. In chapter 52, verse 13, it says, My servant shall act wisely, he shall prosper, he shall be high, lifted up, and shall be exalted. We talked about this many weeks ago, about how this indicates a singularly exalted position. So you've got all of the exalted ones, and then you've got the ones who are exalted even over them, and then you've got the one who is exalted even over all of them. When the Hebrew gives us an idea in triplicate, it means this is the one. Which raises a little bit of an interesting question, then what is the relationship of this singularly exalted person with God? So let's talk about that a little bit now. So the point of Isaiah 52, verse 12, the therefore, is that now Jesus gets what he deserves. So what does Jesus deserve? What did he get? What are the spoils that he gets for his suffering and death? And so now to answer that question, we're going to go into the New Testament to find that out. The first thing that the New Testament, the first thing that we're going to talk about that the New Testament says Jesus got in response for his suffering and death was he got a certain name. You got the highest name. Let's listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Good Friday. Therefore, there's our therefore, God has highly exalted him. Again, this is the language of Isaiah 52. He's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus becomes a really big thing throughout the New Testament. Right away, after Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and Acts 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple. They meet a lame man who, who looks to them for alms. He says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. What, where, there's never been anything like that moment in human history before or since in any other name where just regular dudes who want to do something cool can say in Jesus' name and could, and it's done. What is this name? Next chapter, 
Peter's explaining the message of Jesus. He says, now there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus' name, Jesus now has this name, the name of salvation, the name of power. Acts chapter 8, we, we looked at Philip on Good Friday and, and his story in Acts 8. This is right before that. It says that the, the, the people of Samaria believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. And, and I thought this was really interesting. And good news about the name of Jesus Christ. I've never really thought about the gospel being about the name of Jesus. And this is a big deal for those first Christians. And, and really, you know... The, Wisconsin, right, we're sort of Midwest, like ho-hum, humble, I don't want any great titles. I, I, but we've sort of had to learn to suppress that in ourselves, right? If you've got a group of kids together and they're going to play something organized, right, every kid wants, you know, who wants to be the deputy, and, or who wants to be the sheriff and who wants to be the deputies? I want to be the deputy, right? Everybody wants, who wants to be the princess and who wants to be the queen? I want to be the queen. We all want to be, we want to be the greatest, we want to have the greatest name and the greatest title. And what name is above every name? God's name. And God says Jesus is now, has that name. Now, you might say, okay, what, oh, hang on a second. Uh, theologically, does this mean that at this point Jesus becomes God? And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is, is God is making sure that everybody knows we're together. We're operating on the same level. Jesus, in fact, says in, in John 17, verse 6, He says, Father, glorify me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You together before the world began. So, so Jesus is not now like becoming God, but what is being made clear is that Jesus is on the same level of power and authority as God. In fact, one thing this means for us is the question, who is Jesus, of course, is answered here. He's God. But this also answers the question, who is God? You know, some, some people, when they approach Christianity, they think, well, what's so different about Jesus? Jesus, Gandhi, Joseph Smith, uh, you know, like just inspirational and moral. Uh, There's a big difference. Jesus is God, and what is God like? God is Jesus. All of these things are wrapped up in in saying that this name now comes to Jesus. But what does it mean for Jesus to have God's own name? It means that Jesus has a, a unique kind of authority. Right? Imagine uh, you go to pay for something with your credit card, right? And you sign the slip. Who has the authority to access your line of credit or your debit card, your bank accounts, by just signing a name? Who has that authority, right? Just you, maybe your spouse, right? So everything that God Almighty can sign for, which is everything, Jesus now can sign for. He has the authorization through the bank and through the other financial institutions to do whatever God can do, which is whatever he wants, which is everything. So he has this authority, which points to the second thing that Jesus gets, which is a unique position. The unique position is described here. And again, this is a, an important theme in a variety of different places in the New Testament. Let's just run over some of these things. Jesus himself says in his trial before the Sanhedrin, he says in Matthew 26, you have said so, I tell you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. What does that mean? The right 
hand of power. He goes on in Matthew 28, right before the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. In Acts 7, Stephen, right before he dies, he sees in heaven Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews says when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers subjected to him. In John 5, Jesus explains to us that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. You know, again, thinking about a group of kids playing, anytime there's any sort of elevated structure, like the bleachers here in our gym, which the kids are not supposed to be climbing on, but what are they always doing? (laughs) Parents, they're not supposed to be climbing on it. But they're always climbing on it because why? Because we all want to be in a pie, right? We want to be in the place of power to look down on the peons and laugh. That's what we all want to be. We want to be in that place of power. That is the the basic understanding of the New Testament of where Jesus is. In that singularly exalted position at the right hand of God. At God's right hand means that God exercises all His sovereign rule through Jesus. All the power of God is now overseen by Jesus. I want you to attach in your mind, if you can, the idea of all the power of God, which is responsible for all the operations of all things, now being put in the hands of Jesus. You know, people have uh, sort of various uh, visions of what, who God is and what He's doing. Like, how, how, does, how does God operate? You know, I think some people think, well, God's up there, like He's got like a you know, real high-end iPhone, and He's just like swiping through TikTok and like kind of checking on things periodically. A very distracted God who kind of just lets things be. Some people think of God up there as sort of being this like old man with bad eyesight, just sort of like squinting and kind of angry because he can't really hear well, he can't really see well. And so he's squinting down at things and kind of judging people and throwing problems into our lives. But what this means for us, what the New Testament message about what Jesus received is the spoils of his victory. It means that the one who is operating all things, the operator, is the same one who went to the cross to die for you and for your sins and for your life. It's a very different vision. Now lastly, what does Jesus do there? What does He do in that position with all that authority and all that power? And so we come to the the third big thing that the New Testament says that Jesus is given as a response for His suffering and death. And this is the Spirit... And with the Spirit, also all of the, what some of you New Testament wonks might understand, the spiritual gifts, all the good things that come into our life and that we share as His people. Acts 2 describes this. Again, this is in Peter's sort of like opening sermon to all the world, explaining uh, Jesus and His death and resurrection. And Peter says that, therefore, since He's exalted to the right hand of God, there's that, and, and having, alongside that gift, He has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is pouring out the Holy Spirit on His people. Jesus Jesus gives the best gifts. That's what this means. 
Don't you love giving good gifts and you don't like giving bad gifts? Right? We, we love giving good gifts. If there's some, some sort of, even like a white elephant gift exchange. You know, it used to be sort of funny in college at a white elephant gift exchange. Or what, what do they call them? A Yankee swap or, you know, that's New England. Uh, other, you know, whatever you call it. I mean, in college, it used to be funny to be like the kid that shows up with the box, it's empty. <laughs> you know, swap that emptiness or whatever. But now that you're like a grown-up, you go to like these things and you want to kind of have like oh, something that's sort of decent and swappable. Even at, a, even at a white elephant gift, you don't want to have the worst of the possible gifts. But as soon as we can give good gifts, we want to. I love stories about uh, professional athletes who, you know, coming from poor circumstances, suddenly they come into all this uh, professional athlete money, and then they're just, they're very generous, some of them. Um, ja Morant uh, is a basketball player with the Memphis Grizzlies, and uh, he, he recently had a Secret Santa gift exchange in their team. The, the cap was $200 for the gifts, and he gave his little Secret Santa buddy uh, $15,000 jewelry. You know, just like totally blew the lid off the, the whole thing. And it's just this beautiful generosity. That's what we would love to do all the time, wouldn't we? Jesus does. He can and he does. For Jesus to have all authority and power, it means that he is now, he is now working together with the Spirit of God. I want you to understand what that means. The Spirit is the one who is responsible for all of the good things that we think God sometimes does. Right? All redemption, all healing, all illumination, all further bringing us into the good things of Jesus happens by the work of the Spirit. Everything that we ever come to church in the hope that we'll see. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Every good and perfect gift. Not just church ones or religious ones, or nice, like, socially acceptable, this, every good and perfect gift that you enjoy or have ever enjoyed comes from the Father and is given through the work of the Spirit. And now Jesus, the New Testament wants us to know that Jesus is the one who administrates all that. So, to summarize this, who you think God is, what power you think is running the entire universe, and what you think that power is at work doing in your life. All of that now has to be attached to the person we met in Isaiah 53. This suffering servant who pours his life out for us. It has to be attached to Jesus. Jesus did it all, he gets it all. There's three truths I want to land on today that we're going to reflect on for ourselves. Jesus finished the work. Jesus received the spoils. We are Jesus' people. So what do these truths about Jesus mean for us? What do these truths about Jesus mean for us? Well, as you can anticipate, it means really good things. Like, if you belong to the guy who's at all like the person we just described, that means really good things. And it means two things in particular that we're going to focus on today. It means that it is finished and that we are spoiled. It is finished and we are spoiled. 
So first of all, let's talk about it being finished. Have you ever seen a sports team that wins the game, but then instead of winning the game and celebrating, they, they finish up and they're like yelling at each other. And they're angry about things. They're, they're oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. And, and you should have passed me. And they're, you're like, what? don't you understand what just happened? You won and it's finished. A marathon runner finishes this great exertion, this, this great race, and wins and doesn't celebrate. You know, knocks the, you know, the gifts of the juice or whatever at the end out of people's hands, and he's cursing and swearing and yelling at stuff, and he's all, you think, what don't you understand? What is, don't you know that it's finished and you won? Don't you know that it's finished and you won? Right? If we, understood, if we understood the finishedness of what Jesus did for us, our sins are forgiven, our justification is accomplished, we have unshakable peace with God and the promise of life forever, etc. If we understood the finishedness of what Jesus did, what effect would that have on the various things that you're facing right now or struggling with? Your anxiety, your self-criticism, your other criticism, your struggle with anger or greed or fear. What effect would that have on those things? I think just very briefly, I would want to encourage you to, to think. I think, that it would, I think it would make us a little more relaxed about things. Right? Because even if you didn't, even if you're having a bad day, well, we won. Right? Well, we won. It's finished. I don't have to hate myself too much today because Jesus already did it all. Right? I, don't, I should maybe relax and I, maybe I should be a little bit more cool with the people in my life, a little more generous, a little more encouraging because I don't have to beat them into some sort of condition that somehow makes me look better before God and others because Jesus did all that's necessary for that to be true. So the finishedness of what Jesus did, you know, maybe God's people could be a little chiller and be a little nicer. I think that would be good for us to think about. The second thing is that uh, we are spoiled. Were you spoiled as a kid? I wished I was spoiled, right? I was a pastor's kid. Everything I ever wore was a hand-me-down. You know, it's like five years too late to be cool and a little bit, you know, short or a little bit wide or... I was a little bit wide. It was a little bit tight. <laughs> I remember being really frustrated with one of my peers. Uh, he was a, an only child, and uh, both his parents worked and, and did pretty well. And uh, he, he basically had to just go shopping and get whatever he wanted. And he just had the worst style, the worst taste in clothes and whatever he would buy. You know, it was like he wouldn't take care of it. He was kind of a slob. And it just would drive me crazy. He'd be like, don't, you're not enjoying what you have. You are the child of the ones with the spoils and you're not enjoying it. Friend, you're the child of the one with the spoils. Are you enjoying it? Like we have Jesus. We know who Jesus is. This is what we've been talking about this morning. We know who Jesus is. We know where Jesus is. We know what Jesus is doing, right? So 
what would it mean for us to enjoy what we have with Jesus more? And this is the context in which the, the church is called to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a, a learner of Jesus, to be somebody who's following Jesus and walking with Jesus and trying to keep in step with Jesus makes a lot more sense. right? If this is who Jesus is, that this name and this position and this power and, this, and the Spirit, if this is who Jesus is, then doggone it, every morning when I wake up, hey Jesus, wait up, where are we going today? I want to stay close to you. Hey, Jesus, I got these problems in my life. I could really use you and what you got in my life. I want to live like a spoiled kid with Jesus because right, Jesus gets what he deserves and we get Jesus. So let's enjoy Jesus. Let's enjoy our relationship with this, this one who is there with all these things that are true. Jesus gets what he deserves and this is good news for the world, but it is especially good news for who? It's good news for us. It's good news for His people, for those who have put their faith in Him. So today, let us rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for His victory for him succeeding at being the righteous servant and all that that meant had to happen to him. Lord, we're so thank you for that gift. Lord Jesus, thank you for laying down your life, for pouring out your soul to death so that we might be forgiven, that we might be brought to peace with God and we might enjoy eternal life. Lord, we thank you for these things and we thank you for all that now we know clearly is true about Jesus. Lord, as His people, as Your people, help us, to, help us to live with the sense of the kind of cheat code that we have with Him, of the spoils that He deserves and we as His people get to enjoy. Lord, as we, as we so often conclude our services, we, we talk about uh, how we may have grace from you and how we may know peace. Lord, we are those people who have received such grace and we have been given the opportunity to enjoy such peace. So Lord, by the work of your Spirit, Lord Jesus, would you pour out the Spirit and make us a people of gladness and a people of peace. And help us today to celebrate and enjoy your resurrection and all these things that are true as a result. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.